Morning, folks. Yes, good morning, Nigel. Everyone's a bit, you know, quiet today. Is it the, uh, are you all tired with Christmas shopping? Or are you, are you all just saving yourselves for the dressing up party this afternoon? Oh, come on. <laughs> right, um, I have some very handsome young men over there. <laughs> and, and Mark, their dad as well, <laughs> who are going to give out, um, who's a handsome, slightly less young man, who's going to give out some sheets for you. Um, we are looking at Romans um, and chapter 8. Uh, the second part of chapter 8. If you have a Bible, I would love you to turn to it. Um, I would love you to uh, find it. We're going to read it in a second from the NIV translation. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we have some kicking around at the back. Um, I can't think of a better time than Christmas to talk about Romans chapter 8. I had this, when it, when it sort of, when I realized that this is what we were going to end up doing, what we we're going to be talking about today, I thought, wow, that is just fantastic. Because Christmas is the time when we celebrate God coming among us. We've just sung about it. You are here with us. You are here in the good times and you are here in the tough times. And that's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that is the message of Romans chapter 8, the second part. It's one of the messages. There are many messages. There is some fantastically deep theology here. Um, If I just um, skirt back over, um, by the way, we're reaching the end of hope today. I don't know if you've noticed that. We've done the introduction. We've done wrath, righteousness, and we're getting to the end of hope um, today. So good place to stop for Christmas. And we'll be picking up the rest of uh, the themes in Romans uh, in the new year. But um, as I said, there's no better time than Christmas. If we just go back over what we've learned so far, and there's a brief summary written there on your sheet, just a few summary statements. We've discovered already in Romans as we've climbed this mountain, as we've gone the journey from chapter 1 through to chapter 8, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. But that God in his righteousness, in his righteousness, has done something to rescue us, that he has made his righteousness available through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that we are justified through our faith in Jesus, that his blood has paid the price for our sin, that we are alive to Christ. And when we're alive to Christ, Paul teaches we're dead to sin. And as Brian helpfully reminded us and helped us understand last week, we don't have a sinful nature But we do have our flesh, our body, our body, soul and spirit, that that we live in still, that does have a tendency still to sin. Brian also reminded us from Romans 8 last week that there is no, we're not compelled to sin. There's no condemnation for us as we sin. That's not God's business. We're not compelled either. And it's our choice whether we choose to give into our flesh or not. But that the Holy Spirit is with us and enables us to overcome that. And that all of that comes about because of adoption, because we are adopted into God's family. We get a brand new identity. Adoption means you change your identity and you receive a full inheritance. And Paul, as you recall from last week, Paul uses the word sons. He calls us all sons. It's not a sexist thing. Okay, you can think of yourself as a daughter. You don't have to think of yourself as a son. But Paul was using it in that context because legally to become a son meant that you got the legal rights to everything the father owned. Everything the father owned. So we can we can say it's our sonship. And I think the message version of uh, 
12 to 14, really sums it up neatly. And I've reproduced it on your sheet for you. This is just a kind of summary introduction from last week. From 12 in the message. So don't see, don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. It's an American translation. There's nothing in it for us. Nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. And I love how um, I love how the message picks up the next bit. Romans eight fifteen. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? Any of your kids ever say that to you? What's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we're going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. Now, I love that phrase, adventurously expectant. I don't know about you, but that is where I want to live. I'm not an adventurer by nature, but I do want to be adventurously expectant. Do you know who that guy is on the left? Anybody recognize him? Very good. That is a little boy. Oh, there you go. That's Bear Grylls. Okay, but that's with his dad. His dad was an MP, uh, the MP for the uh, Isle of Wight, Sir Michael Grylls. Now, Bear Grylls is well known as being an adventurer and having an adventurous spirit. And he talks quite openly about how that spirit was really encouraged and fostered by his father. And by the times he spent with his father as a boy, just climbing and doing the outdoor stuff. I wonder, I, it's a little, for those of you who are interested, I had a little bit of time to do some basic research on this. But I just wonder how many explorers had that kind of, had that kind of experience growing up. Where their, where their father or their mum or their parent or, or, or a parent-like figure was there just kind of releasing them into just that kind of, hey, come on, you can do this. You can go for it. I, wonder, I don't think you could do some of the things that he does and be that kind of person without having the confidence that's been built in you from somebody having told you from an early age how significant and how special you are. And many of us didn't get that. And beautifully, God can come and do that for us, which is wonderful. Some of us, you know, have been so beaten up by life and our circumstances that we can't even begin to think about the word adventure. We're just, we're just coping. In fact, we're not even coping some of the time. We're just about coping. You know, we feel like we've stalled and there's no way forward. And you think, uh, you know, and I say to you, adventurously expectant, and you think, yeah, I'm, I'm doing well just to live day by day. Some of us feel we've, we've messed up so much that there is just no way that God would want to continue to use us or be with us. Maybe it's emotional trauma. Maybe it's failed relationships. Maybe it's broken families or addictions or habits. And if that's you, I promise you that God has a plan for your life. And whether you're in the middle of a deep crisis or whether things are going well, he has an adventurously expectant resurrection life ready and available for each of us to lead. He is in the business of adopting the lonely and the broken and the messed up and bringing about permanent transformation. When he takes us on as his sons and daughters, everything changes. Like I said, our identity changes, our entitlement changes. 
And I've just reproduced the table for you on your, uh, on your sheet there um, from uh, Tim Keller's book. And he just talks about the difference in mindset and thinking between those who consider themselves to be slaves of God and those who consider themselves to be sons of God. And I don't have time to go into that now. But do have a think about that and just, just reflect on that in your own life. Because when we really know who the Father is, then we really know who we are. And that will give us power to face whatever comes our way, be it good or bad. And that's what this morning is really about. There's a question here, and it's written in bold halfway down your sheet. And it's basically um, the question that kind of Paul is implicitly asking and then answering through the rest of this chapter, which is how can a Christian face the sufferings and the temptations and the trials of life with an overwhelming confidence and a deep assurance that all the strife is so much more than worthwhile. How can that happen? And Paul answers that in this passage, and it's quite a long passage, and I'm going to read it all the way through from verse 17. I'm going to pick up at verse 17, which is where Brian finished uh, last week. He said, if you remember, just as he finished, that suffering gets in under the radar. Do you remember? And he put up a picture of the, the Windows, um, you know, your computer screen when you're clicking on um, getting and downloading a new bit of software. And it comes in and says, do you give permission for all this? And nobody ever reads it. And they just say, yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, and Brian said, it's a bit like that. We get, the, we get the sonship, we get the adoption. And then there's just this little verse that says, and if indeed we share in his sufferings, we'll also share in his glory. Well, that's what the rest of this chapter unpacks. Let's read from verse 17. Now, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider, Paul goes on, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God, sorry, the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified told you it was a long passage sorry and there's a lot in it verse 31 what then shall we say in response to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen 
It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Don't you want to cheer? Not me, him. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And, And, you know, I'm sorry it's long, but, you know, it kind of just flows, doesn't it? And that's why I just want, I've got about half an hour and I just want us to get a sense of that journey through that passage. We're not going to be able to unpack all that's in there in any kind of depth because there's so much theology in there and so much fantastic stuff. But that narrative is wonderful. And I just want to pick up four key points. And the first one um, really takes on board the first 10 verses, um, just kind of skirts through them really. And it's called Suffering, Sighing and Shining. You see, I've already talked about suffering And in verse 17, it's clear that sonship and suffering go hand in hand. Paul himself experienced a massive amount of suffering in his life. You don't need to turn to it, but let me read you this list, which is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just a couple of verses. Paul is reflecting on his own struggles, his own sufferings, the things that have happened to him as he's gone around trying to preach the gospel and be faithful to what God's called him to do. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger at the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. That's quite a list, isn't it? And what's really intriguing is that Paul didn't try and explain any of this away. He didn't try and stick his head in the sand and pretend it wasn't happening. He actually didn't try and blame anybody else for it. He just faced it. Now, I'm sure that it's, I'm sure that we can just read that. And, you know, it's very easy to read just a few lines like that. But going through that stuff, that's like hell on earth. He just faced it and he knew God was with him in it. And that ultimately the evil that was exerting itself there had been defeated by Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now I've got some good and some bad news for us. (laughs) Which do you want first? (laughs) The good news is that we can expect to face similar experiences following Jesus. Yeah, you heard me right. That's good news. And it's good news because it will change us and grow us. Actually, that's bad news. (laughs) That is good news. It's also the bad news. The bad news is we can expect to face similar experiences following Jesus. The good news is we have the Holy Spirit available to empower us in the midst of extremely difficult times. And in verse 17, Paul reminds us that we do not suffer on our own. We suffer with Jesus. We share in his sufferings and he shares in ours. You see, Jesus is the guy who modelled suffering. We're coming up to Christmas. I used to do um, some work in schools in Birmingham 
and we used to teach a sort of Christmas musical. And one of the songs that we used to teach him, them, the kids, was a song that, the, that Mary sang in the drama after Jesus has been born, when Mary realizes that Jesus is going to grow up and she's going to lose him. He goes, hush now, Mary, please don't weep. Hush now, please don't cry. For this child you cannot keep, this child born to die. That's a sort of sobering moment at Christmas, isn't it? You know? Jesus modelled suffering. And he's here with us as we struggle. Emmanuel, we've sung it this morning. You are here in all the different times. He doesn't abandon us when things get rough. He walks through them with us. Paul shared a few weeks ago, used this brilliant translation. Who's ever seen one of these books? A Where's Wally book. You have to look on every page, but if you look carefully, you will find Wally somewhere on the page. I can see you're all doing it now. I'm assuming he's on there. I just grabbed this off the internet, so I don't actually know he's there. He's right in the middle, isn't he? There he is. Somewhere right, he's right, he's right up in the middle. Just like a Where's Wally book, Jesus is on every page of our lives. Sometimes we just have to look quite hard to see him. Paul says our suffering, he's with us, and our suffering is for the present time. It's not forever. Our, our suffering is not forever, Paul says. And for those who believe in Jesus, our suffering stops when we die. For the rest of the world, it stops when Jesus comes back. So no matter how hard life is and how tough things really are, and I'm not decrying that life can be pretty tough. I'm not trying to diminish what we're feeling. I'm just trying to say that the Bible says that it is temporary. It will not last. Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? When, you, when we're helping one another through difficult times, what do we say? I mean, what do you say to the person who's just lost somebody very, very close to them? What, what do you say? Sometimes, you, you know, there's nothing to say when people are just in deep crisis. We, we've, we've learned from a friend of ours that just one of the things you can say to somebody who's in deep crisis is, it's okay, you will get through this. You know? This is really hard, but it won't, it won't feel like this forever. And sometimes that's all we can say. And Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. But it is temporary. That's what the Bible says. And the next section is the sighing of God. You know, three times Paul talks about sighing or groaning. In verse 23, he talks about us groaning. In verse 22, he talks about creation groaning. In verse 26, he talks about the spirit groaning on our behalf. That groan, sighing. <sighs> we have a funny uh, expression in our house. There's a, there's a guy who, um, he actually leads the vineyard movement, a guy called John Wright. He, he's, he's, um, he's a lovely guy. Um, he's not fantastically sort of charismatic. He's quite a quiet bloke. And uh, Joe was having a conversation with him one day about sighing. And he said, I, um, I know I'm tired when I sigh a lot. I just know it's a sign that I'm just feeling tired. I need to rest. And so whenever we, um, whenever one of us sighs, we say, oh, that's a big sigh. God bless John Wright. <laughs> that's, that's just what we do. <laughs> the word for groan or sigh, it means kind of a narrowing or a squeezing or a constricting. And, you know, when things are tough, that's what it can feel like. We feel like we're being constricted. Like the life is being squeezed out of us. And in those times, it's all we can do to offer sometimes a deep internal oh, groan. 
And Paul is reassuring us in this passage that that groan does not go unheard by God. In fact, not only does he hear us, he's with us and he's groaning with us. We're not the only ones. Creation is groaning. Paul says, as it waits in the tension of unfilled, unfulfilled hopes and expectations. And that as God is with us, the spirit is with us too. And Paul is basically describing here what it is to live between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. I told you there was a lot in this passage. I could do a whole sermon just on that thing about creation groaning. That's a whole different subject, but we'll come back to that next year. The now and the not yet. Jesus started something when he came to this earth. He announced the kingdom and called his disciples. And we've seen the first fruits of that. And his disciples are called to follow him and to do the stuff with him and to announce the kingdom and to bring it in. We've started something. He started something, but it's not complete yet. And we live in the midst. We live in the gap between the now and the not yet. And we're waiting. And we're waiting for something that he's promised, which is glory. And that's the shining. You see, suffering and sighing lead to shining. And verse 18, he talks about how this suffering is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And verse 30, which we'll come to in a minute, just says the sons and the daughters of God will be glorified. You see, what we have now pales into absolute insignificance compared to the glory that we're going to experience with God. Paul was certain of it. The Bible's certain of it. We need to be certain of it. He talks about the pains of childbirth. Now, anybody who's had children or has been with people who've had children will know there's a lot of pain in childbirth, but it's kind of mostly just forgotten as soon as the child arrives. The glory of God is about taking, it's talking, it's so worth the wait. It's completely worth it. There's a quote there from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. That God will make the feeblest and the filthy of us, filthiest of us into a God or goddess, small g. Dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process we will be long. And in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. Don't you love that? So suffering and sighing will make way for shining. The glory of God. We just get a glimpse of that every now and then. We worship God and we just experience his presence like the guys were leading us this morning. And we say, yes, that's the truth. And you're here. Imagine that all day long. Not that music particularly, but that sense. And so that leads us on to verse 28, which is a really well-known verse, that we know that in all things God is working for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. And I'm going to read 29 because you can't really read this without the context of 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, when we hear that phrase, God will work for good in all things, it doesn't always feel like that's what's going on, does it? Or is it just me? Does it feel like God is always working for good in all things? Is that how it feels to us sometimes? It kind of depends what we mean by good, doesn't it? That's the crux of this. 
you see, we're not talking about material good. We're talk- not talking about circumstances just working out. The good that Paul is talking about is there in verse 29. It's about being conformed to the image of his son, about becoming more like Jesus. That's the best good we can imagine. See, God works for the good of those who love him, those who've set their heart on him, those who've made a long-term decision out of relationship with him, not out of duty, but out of relationship. And things work for the good for those who love God. That's part of his bigger purpose. Let me read you. I've just downloaded this uh, really new translation. Actually, it was Will who put me onto it last year. But they've released the whole thing. It's called the Passion Translation of the Bible. They haven't got the whole Bible done yet, but this is just verse 28 in the Passion Translation. Let me read it to you. It says, so we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. This is actually about character change. This is actually about us becoming more like Jesus. And God uses everything in our lives, be it good or bad, to help us become more like Jesus. Imagine God as a craftsman. There is a master design. It's Jesus and his perfect greatness. And what he's doing is he's becoming, making us, he's conforming us to the image of Jesus. So here's Jesus. That's the model. And with each of us, he is crafting us. Maybe he's shaping us. He's polishing us or melting us or smoothing us or sculpting us, sculpting us, not scalping. That's wrong. Sculpting us, sculpting us. Can't say the word. We're being remade from the inside out. That's what this says. In another part of Corinthians, Paul talks about we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. There's a day by day process by which God is shaping us and transforming us to become more like him. And when that is complete, we will be in glory with him. That's the journey we're on. And so what makes our life good is not necessarily the circumstances that happen to us. Sometimes they're terrible. What makes our life good is how we, in our hearts, respond to the circumstances around us and how we deal with them when they come. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? Nod and pretend that you are even if you're not. So if we know God is for us and he's working for our good, that will help us to find gratitude and joy in our daily routine. You know, we won't take him for granted. We can celebrate when things go well. Oh, God's blessed me. Fantastic. It'll also help remove fear and anxiety, which includes embracing struggles and suffering. And also it will give us confidence that no matter what we do, we can't ruin God's purpose for us. Now, I'm not saying that God is into sin. He's not. We've already covered all of that. But when we do mess up and do our own thing, when we go our own way, God is still able to use that experience to bring about good in our lives. So sin isn't good, but God can use sin for our good. Do you see what I'm saying? That was good, wasn't it? I just said that off the top of my head. You can write that down. Quote, Nigel Hemming, sin isn't good. But God uses sin, ours or other people's, for our good. 
He can do that. And how we react to the situations we find ourselves in is all about how God brings about good in our lives. You look like you need a rest. Is everyone's brains sort of working overtime? It's all right, I've only got 20 more points to make. <laughs> how that takes us, where that takes us next is it takes, on, takes us onto something called a glorious unbreakable chain. And this is verse 30. Verse 30, the evidence of what I've just been talking about. See, Paul says, what's happened here is that those whom God has predestined, he's also called. And those whom he's called, he's also justified. And those whom he's justified, he's also glorified. And these kind of five words, which I've written out on your sheet for you, they kind of represent God's plan for each and every one of us. He foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us. So when it says foreknew, what that means is when the Bible talks about God knowing someone, this isn't talking about predestination, by the way. That's a whole different subject. Okay? But this is talking about God knowing someone. When, when the Bible says God knew someone, it means he set his love on them in a personal way. It's talking about relationship. So what this is saying is that up ahead of time, God had designs on relationship with each of us. Before the beginning of time, God had designs on relationship with us. He foreknew us. He thought, that one, that one, that one. And then, and then he predestined us. And what that means is that God has planned and predestined already this glorious ultimate destination for us that I've just been talking about. And then he called us. And just like in verse 28, those who are called are those who, are, who love God. Those who respond to God's call with a deep conviction. And then he justified us. In other words, we, he, he now treats us as legally righteous and guilt-free. We are blameless for our sin. And we covered all that in chapter 3. <laughs> because of what Jesus did on the cross. And Paul includes that here, even though he's covered that in detail before, to show that it wasn't just an, the justification wasn't, part of, it wasn't an isolated incident. This is part of God's plan for each and every one of us. part of his master plan and it finishes in glory that he glorified us and glorified means we have all our sin eradicated and we're made perfect in body and soul and the fact that this is in the past tense shows just how much faith and certainty that Paul has that this is what's going to happen he's already done it Paul says he's already done it he's glorified us a guy called James Denny calls this the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. That God has already glorified us. Just going to stop. Let's have a minute of quiet for the internal processes, just to think about that. And for those of you with external processes, turn to the person next to you and tell them what that makes you think. And if an external processor turns to you and you're an internal processor, just say, I'm an internal processor, I'm just thinking. See, we are part of an incredible, incredible story within a majestic ultimate destiny. Okay, owning up time. 
Who's been to see the new Star Wars film already? Right. Don't spoil it. No, no. I'm not saying I haven't been to see it, so I can't spoil it for you. Um, I'm really, I I mean, I I could take or leave Star Wars. Honestly, I'm I'm not that bothered. I'm I'm not disinterested. I'm just not that interested either. But I'm, (laughs) I'm really interested in why so many people are obsessed with this story. And perhaps in the same way with the Lord of the Rings story. These huge, grand, sweeping stories that create whole worlds and whole kingdoms and talk about good and evil and love and destiny. You see, it's very, I'm not, if you're into Star Wars, great, enjoy that. Brilliant. No, seriously, that sounds like I'm making an excuse. Just, just go and enjoy it. Fantastic. I am really excited about this big sweeping story with love and faith and destiny in it. And good as Star Wars is and as brilliant as J.J. Abrahams is, this is better. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, preach it, Nigel. So, you know, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I love movies, I love art, art reflects life. There's a, there are, there's a whole big chunk of that stuff that just reflects this. But what a story. I mean, what a story. Think about that. Since before time until the end of time, each one of us is on that journey. Where does that take us to? Well, it takes us to the last section from verse 31, that God is for us. There are five questions here. And I've written them down for you on your sheet and I've sort of slightly reinterpreted them as well. If God is for us, who could be against us? In other words, why now do we need to be afraid of anything or anyone? If God gave up his son for us, how will he not give us all the things we need? In other words, why do we need to worry about the stuff we haven't got or the stuff that we need? Question three, if God has justified us, then who can bring charges against us? In other words, why do we ever need to feel guilty or unforgiven? If Jesus, who died for us despite living the perfect life, is standing before God on our behalf, interceding for us, praying for us, groaning for us, then why do we ever need to feel guilty or unforgiven? And to sum the whole thing up, is there anyone or anything that can separate me from the love that Jesus Christ has for me? And the answer is no. And I can see you all shaking your heads, which is good. No, Nigel. No. I mean, if that stuff is true, then we can face anything, right? And believe me, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody here. We can face, as Paul describes it, trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 44, we can face death daily. And some people have to face death because of their beliefs. And we're pretty lucky we don't. And yet nothing can separate us from this love of God. So the message for us to take home is whatever is going on in our lives, whatever we're we're going through, it cannot, it should not, and it will not get in the way of the love that God has for us and us experiencing that for real. There's nothing can deny this truth that God is for us. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about the need to re- read this stuff and declare it and repeat it and read it and declare it and re- repeat it. He used the phrase doctrine on fire. The Holy Spirit works through truth. And if you don't know this, then can I just suggest that all the way through this Christmas period, starting today, you just read these few verses to yourself every day. Find a translation that works for you and then read them and meditate them and think about them. Because the truth that's contained in here is enough to live and die by. I'm going to tell you a story and show you a little video before we go. Pardon? God bless John Wright. <laughs> if God is for us, who can be against us? I don't know if you've heard of this guy called Andrew Chan. Um, and I think, oh, there isn't a photo of him. Is there, is there a photo of him? Yeah, just move it on to the last thing. Thank you. I'll just tell you a little bit about him. Andrew Chan was an Australian guy who was convicted and executed in Indonesia for drug trafficking. Okay. He was part of a group that got referred to as the Bali Nine. These two guys were the leaders of this group, Andrew Chan and Mayuran Sukumaran. Chan's the guy on the right. These were the co-ringleaders of the heroin smuggling operation from Indonesia to Australia. And at their trial in February 2006, they were sentenced to execution by the firing squad in Indonesia. And after various appeals, as is usual in these cases, Um, Earlier this year, in April 2015, they were shot by a firing squad in Indonesia. Now, I'm not interested in the, I'm not here to talk about the legal side of that. The prison governor described Chan and Sukumaran as model prisoners and testified in court that he felt that they should not be executed because of the positive influence they've had. In an interview, this governor stated, Chan organises courses in prison, leads the English language church service and is a mentor to many. You see, he became a Christian while he was in prison. And he led the English language Christian service and started a theology course. One of his friends who regularly visited him on death row said he was a totally reformed, rehabilitated and honourable man who had been a leader among the prisoners. In reconciling his death sentence with his faith in God, Chan himself said this. When I got back to my cell, I said, God, I asked you to set me free, not kill me. God spoke to me and said, Andrew, I have set you free from the inside out. And I have given you life. And Chan said, from that moment on, I haven't stopped worshipping him. I had never sung before, never led worship until Jesus set me free. That was in 2013, he said that. The priest who counselled him before his death said this. He was prepared to meet his maker. I saw great courage and strength. I saw peace and assurance. I saw radiant beauty and joy. I will never, never forget it. And this is what was um, said about him by his family at his funeral. While he was led, while he, while he led the seven other prisoners walking to the place where they were going to kill him, when their voices started, they were singing worship songs. And when their voices started to slow down, Andrew told them, come on, boys, we can sing better than this. And as they entered the field, they sang Amazing Grace. And as they were tied up, they sang 10,000 Reasons. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And in a eulogy that Chan actually wrote himself to be read at his funeral, his, his, uh, he'd written this. My last moments here on earth, I sang out hallelujah. I ran the good race, I fought the good fight, and I came out a winner in God's eyes. Isn't that amazing? I want to play you a little video, and the video is Matt Redman, who is the songwriter of that song, um, 10,000 Reasons, Bless the Lord, O oh My Soul.
you'll know the song because we sing it here quite a lot. And uh, Redmond, was, it's, it's an interview about songwriting and worship. It's not really an interview about that. But he talks about this incident. And I think it's really moving. And I think it really brings home what it is that we've been talking about today. It's just about a minute and a half. So can you play it for me, guys? I think the most profound story for me so far has happened recently. There's this, uh, these guys in Bali who were, um, a guy called Andrew Chan and some other guys who... They were uh, prisoners there uh, facing, going to face the firing squad because they had been guilty of drug trafficking about nine years before. But since then, they've become Christians and like full-on life transformed, and they were transforming other people's lives. So a lot of people were appealing for them not to face the death sentence, but as it turned out, the authorities there decided they, they needed to do that still. had some reports back from, uh, firstly from newspapers and then from people close to the thing that as they went to face the firing squad, they were seeing 10,000 reasons. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And, you know, I thought that, I don't think it gets more profound than that. I mean, firstly, who's the worship leader? That's the most amazing act of worship leading I've ever heard of. Secondly, it tells me that you can face anything in this life and still be found with a song of worship on your lips, even a firing squad, right? And thirdly, I just thought, how did that song end up there? You know, what an amazing... Thing And these are the things that I love when things are immeasurable. You know, sometimes people are looking at charts or they're, oh, this song sold, you know, sold this many or, I don't know, this people showed up at a worship event. But, you know, forget all that stuff. You know, what's the stuff that's immeasurable? You can't really put a, a figure on. That's the stuff I love. The stuff like that, you can't, there's no way of measuring that. It's just profound. It's immense. It's intense. It's wonderful, beautiful. And, um, and it, you know, that, that's the stuff I, I want to, do in ministry, stuff that you can't really measure. Isn't that an amazing story? And, and you know, that's a, that's a pretty emotional story um, and profound, as Matt Roman said, but the reality is that there are believers all over the world facing death and all kinds of other persecutions that don't get their stories told on the media so much. And for each of them, they have to live out of this truth that we've talked about. And that's the challenge for us, isn't it? To know and believe and act on this truth that God is working for our good, that he knew us from before time and has an amazing and glorious destiny planned for us. And that because of what he's done, there is nothing, nothing, no circumstance and no person that can separate us from God's love for us. Why don't we stand together? And so, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here and we thank you for this truth, which is almost too much to comprehend. And we just invite you to come and take this truth to our hearts. Captivate us, challenge us, minister to us, we pray. And as we come to ministry, my feeling was that, I'm, I'm not sure, God, God's here. But, um, you know, I, I highlighted, in, Paul highlights in those questions, some of the things that we struggle with, fear. You know, if God is for us, there's no need to fear. And worry, anxiety about meeting our needs. And guilt and unforgiveness. 
I just wanted to highlight those three things initially that I think God might want to deal with today. Those of us who are struggling with fear. Those who are struggling with anxiety. Just not knowing how things are going to work out. And those of us who are struggling with guilt or unforgiveness. But there's something else in there as well, which is abandonment. Because sometimes the sense that we feel through the circumstances that have happened to us is that we just feel abandoned. We feel on our own and we don't connect with the love of Jesus. Maybe we just don't know that God is with us. We just don't know that. We've heard it. We can say it, but we don't know it in our hearts. And so if we're facing trouble, if we're facing difficult circumstances, if we're struggling, if things are just really tough, whoever's fault that is and whatever the reason, today we would love to pray with you. If you're struggling with fear or anxiety or guilt, if you're feeling lonely or on your own, if you need to know that God is with you, I'd love just in one second to invite you to just respond and just to come to the front. If you are in the midst of difficult circumstances, if you just need someone to stand with you as you acknowledge that and encourage you, and and just want to say that we, we will pray for you, but what we want to do first and foremost is to just to stand with you as you declare the truth and then we'll encourage you and comfort you and support you and pray for you. So if that applies to any of you guys, in a second I'm just going to invite you to come and we'd love to pray for you. Guys, why don't you come? And there are other people who you know that you need courage. You need courage to face a situation that you're in even this afternoon and certainly into the next week. And we, as we invite you to come forward, the thing is, we've said this before, there's nothing magic about being at the front, but sometimes it's really helpful to have a physical response to what God is doing inside you. The other thing that it does is it creates a memory because as you come and you give yourself back to God and he meets you here, then tonight or tomorrow or next week, when you go, oh, you know, you're tempted to struggle or to be troubled by it again, you can actually remember. Now, actually, I I responded on Sunday and God met me there. It kind of puts a line in the sand about what God is doing with you. So there isn't anything magic here, but it can be a really helpful way to respond to what God is, is saying to you and doing with you. So if you do want to respond, now's a good time to come down. The band are going to play. Come and stand at the front and some of the folk from our church family who know how to kind of pray alongside people will come and join you. So if you're not responding for prayer yourself and you're in one of our groups and you know how to pray, do come forward as well, please. Now's a good time to move. Let's have one or two folks from the church just to come pray as well. Thank you for coming, guys. If the Lord's, just want to encourage you, if you're in that place, the Lord is here. He knows us. He knows where we're at. Bless you guys. Keep coming. And as people come, why don't we have some, I want some folks from life groups or some folks from the church just to come and stand with these folks. Not necessarily to pray for them straight away, but just stand with them, pray with them. Let's have some of you guys out, please. Thank you. Particularly some ladies. Let's do that. So Holy Spirit, we just bless you and we welcome your work among us. And all that you're doing here, we bless you for. Thank you. And there's more of you. Just, just feel free to come. This is a safe place. 
and it's really okay. It's a totally safe place. Come right around to the This is a safe place to come and just acknowledge what God is doing and saying, nobody will judge you here. This is just a place of coming back to the truth. Keep going, guys. Come and fill in along the front here. Bless you. Let's have some more folks from the church to come and pray as well. I need some more women and some more men, if that's okay. Thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the beautiful work that you're doing here. We acknowledge it. We acknowledge that this truth, that knowing this truth and experiencing it and walking in it, that's not always easy. But thank you for what you're starting here. And Holy Spirit, we bless you. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will lead us to all truth, will lead us to the Father, will lead us to Jesus. guys are going to play gently you may just want to stand and reflect on what we've been talking about and just worship if you've got kids now would be a great time to go and um, pick them up there's coffee available i'm just going to close up here just father we thank you for your work among us we thank you for the truth of your gospel we thank you for the truth that you know us that you've called us we thank you that you are bigger than all of our fears and our anxieties and our worries that where we need courage, you have courage. bless you Holy Spirit we thank you for what you're doing among us Lord thank you for the gift of Jesus at Christmas thank you for the truth of Emmanuel God is with us thank you for your presence here now and we recommit ourselves to follow you to pursue you to deal with our stuff and not let anything get in the way of you we bless you for your ministry here among us now